Well, it is good to see you this morning. And as I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, we are starting a new uh, sermon series today in the book of Judges. And so if you would turn there right now, we're going to read a, a fairly long passage, uh, which is on pages 201 and 202 in your Bibles, a few Bibles that is. We're going to read Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. And the first couple chapters of Judges are an over, overview of the book. And so uh, I've selected this passage today because it gives us a, a snapshot of what happens in the entire book. It gives us a snapshot of the, the trouble that Israel is in. It gives us a snapshot of God's faithfulness to them in the midst of their trouble. And hopefully uh, it gives us a picture of uh, our own hearts and our own need for the Lord. And so let's give our attention to the reading of God's word, starting in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north uh, of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they, were, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord who, and served the Baals and the Asheroth. So the Anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. 
So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Here ends the reading of God's word. So, as we move into this new sermon series, perhaps you're familiar with the book of Judges, perhaps uh, you've read it yourself, perhaps uh, former preachers have gone through uh, that series, or that book rather, in a series here in years past. Judges is an interesting book uh, in scripture. It's not one of those feel-good books. It's not one of those books where everything gets better at the end. Isn't that what we're used to in, uh, in, in our modern entertainments? Uh, when you look at a TV show, when you, you go to a movie, uh, there's always uh, a problem at the beginning of the movie or, or, the, or the TV show. And over the course uh, of the plot, uh, the, the tension deepens and the problem gets worse and you wonder if it's going to be resolved. And then sometimes all of a sudden at the very end, everything comes out okay, right? Uh, if you uh, are of a certain age, perhaps you were accustomed to watching uh, Disney movies uh, where uh, the, you know, the princess uh, was always captured by the fair prince and they all lived happily ever after. And that's just not the way Judges works. Judges is a hard book to read, where actually the, the reverse of that cycle happens. Things start out okay. You're, you're hoping they'll get better. Uh, as, you know, toward the end of the passage that we read today, the Lord said, you know, because of your disobedience, Israel, I'm not going to drive out any more of the people that you have allowed to remain uh, in the land that I've given you. And I'm going to use them to test you to see whether you're going to repent and walk in the ways that I've commanded you to walk. And so you, you'd like to think that God's people with, with God's testimony would do the right thing. And yet they don't. Judges uh, takes course over a, a period of roughly 300 years. Uh, it probably starts sometime around the mid-14th century B.C., uh, and it ends probably right around uh, the time of Saul's reign or perhaps very early in David's reign. So it, it ends very early in the kingly period. And you'd like to think with that, with that movement of a time that God's people would get better, but they don't. Because the book of Judges just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And you'll see as we go through it uh, that by the end of the summer, uh, the, the judges themselves are in pretty bad shape. It, it's hard to even fathom that they are representatives of the Lord himself, and God's people are in even worse shape. Uh, they have completely abandoned the Lord. And so what we see in the book of Judges is this continually repeating cycle, a, a causality loop. Uh, that the people of Israel go through over and over and over again. If any of you are familiar with Star Trek The Next Generation, um, do any of you or have any of you watched that series? Okay, so like four or five of you. Uh, one of my favorite episodes in that series is called Cause and Effect. 
and it's where the Enterprise, the, the starship, gets caught in this uh, temporal causality loop where they're forced to kind of repeat the same circumstances over and over and over and over again. And eventually they figure out what's going on and they're able to break free. And I think it takes them 17 days or something like that to do that. But the, as, as I've said before, the people of Israel go through that same loop over and over and over again. And they just don't get it. They get worse and worse and worse. By my count, they go through this loop at least 13 times throughout the, the uh, course of the book. Um, and here's what the loop looks like. The people of Israel are enticed to follow the gods of the Canaanites, uh, the, the tribes that still live among them. And if you think back to, um, to Joshua and to Deuteronomy, uh, when Moses was still living, what did God command the people of Israel to do with the land that he was giving them? He said, drive out the nations who live in that land because their gods and their traditions will be a stumbling block to you. They'll be a snare to you. But Israel doesn't drive them out. So Israel falls away from God and worships the local gods of the Canaanites, the Baals and the Asheroths. And then God allows the Canaanites to, uh, to rule over and to harshly mistreat the people of Israel. Israel groans and calls out to God for deliverance. God raises up a judge to deliver Israel from the power of their oppressors. The people of Israel repent partially for a time, and then the cycle starts all over again, over and over and over again. And uh, as much as we would like to think that uh, we are essentially good and we know the right things to do and we'll do them. Israel doesn't do that. We don't do it either. Uh, the moral standing of Israel grows steadily worse and worse. And the final five chapters of Judges give accounts of horrific idolatry, uh, a horrific disregard for human life, and terrible sexual violence. The book ends with an Israelite civil war. And, and the very last verse in the book, chapter 20, Chapter 21, rather, verse 25 is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what, did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's a recipe for disaster. So here's my thesis of the entire book of Judges. We'll keep circling back to it as we move through the book. And, and the thesis is this. It's just three words. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences. That's the very thing that God warned his people about. He warned his people to, uh, to dislodge the Canaanites who were living in the land, not because God wanted to be mean, but because he knew that his people were not strong enough to resist the, the temptation, the lure of the good things that uh, the Canaanite people and their gods promised to them. Judges um, is a historical book. It wasn't written to warn the people of Israel what would happen to them if uh, they refused to, to uh, do God's will. It was a book that was written at the beginning of the kingly period, probably, as I said a moment ago, under the reign of Saul or uh, during the very beginning of the reign of David, it was written as a reminder to God's people of what would happen 
if the covenant people of God refused to do God's will. And yet, it's not a book without hope. There's hope here for two reasons. One, the book of Judges sets the background for the greatest king that ancient Israel would ever know. That's King David. And second, in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews points to the deeds done in faith by the judges. He names four of them. He names Gideon, uh, Barak, and uh, it's curious that he names Barak there because Barak himself wasn't the judge. Uh, Barak was the leader of the military. Uh, Deborah was the judge uh, who worked with Barak. Samson and Jephthah. And, And the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verses 39 and 40, that their partial and limited works of deliverance were pointing toward the ultimate judge with a capital J, Jesus Christ, who would deliver us all uh, from our oppressors once and for all. And so today we're going to look at this introduction to the book of Judges uh, just with two points. One is the unfaithfulness of God's people, the unfaithfulness of God's people, and then the faithfulness of God. The unfaithfulness of God's people and the faithfulness of God. So the first point, what's going on in the minds and the hearts of the people of Israel during the book of Judges? Well, historically, we know that the Lord instructed Israel to completely destroy the people and the culture of Canaan. And the earliest incidence of this instruction is found in Numbers 33, where the Lord tells the people of Israel to destroy all the people of Canaan and their gods because, quote, Those of whom you let remain shall be as barbs to your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. So the the warning doesn't get any more clear than that. I've never had a barb in my eye, but I would assume that it not only is extremely painful, but it keeps you from seeing. And I have had a thorn in my side, and I know that that is uh, difficult uh, and painful as well. And then when we look at this from a 21st century perspective, we might be tempted to say, gee, that's, that's awfully harsh. Why does God want to destroy uh, all of these innocent people? Well, it's because, because God knew that the Canaanites weren't innocent, um, that they were guilty of idol worship, that they were guilty of all manner of sin. They, they were not elect. And God knew that just the, the, the mere presence of these people living alongside Israel would infect Israel with their uh, philosophies and their theology, and Israel would eventually begin to serve their gods. And that's exactly what happened. It didn't take long at all. Uh, And so if you look back at our passage today in verse 10, it says, and there arose another generation of Israel after Joshua's generation, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. It is humbling to realize that it took only about 40 years, just 40 years or so after the death of Joshua, for all Israel to abandon the Lord and serve idols. Why did they do that? Well, if you're in Judges 2, look back for a moment Uh, At Judges 1, starting in verse 27, the the writer of Judges lists the reasons. He says, the tribe of Manasseh uh, did not drive out the Canaanite inhabitants still living in its territory. 
And in verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites living in its territory. And in verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, and so on. And while not all of the 12 tribes are listed there, each of the 12 tribes did exactly the same thing. They did not get rid of the, of the Canaanite tribes that were living in their territory. And so because Israel refused to do the hard work of driving out the peoples who already lived in the territory that the Lord had given to them, they intermingled with those people. They did business with them, they intermarried with them, and they turned away from the personal God who loved them, who had delivered them from slavery, who had given them an inheritance, who had provided for them, who had made a covenant with them and served instead these made-up gods who required very little. The God of Israel wanted covenant relationship and love and obedience and trust. But the Baals and the Ashtaroths didn't care about relationship. They were strictly transactional deities and much easier to manage than the Holy One of Israel. That's why God not only instructed Israel to drive out the inhabitants of the land, but it's why he helped them to do it, because he knew that his people would be so easily tempted. So I don't know if any of you have this trouble, but uh, sometimes I snack. And uh, more than once, uh, I, I have snacked too much. And I snack mainly for the wrong reasons, mainly because I'm anxious or tired uh, or bored. And so... I found that chocolate is a big source of temptation for me. I found that um, having chocolate around is, is a really big snare. And while I'd like to think that I should be strong enough to have chocolate in the house and not run to it every time I feel anxious or bored or tired, often that's not the case. Often I do run and find it, and even if my good wife Susan has hidden some of it, uh, I still root it out and find it, and I use it uh, to feel better. And so it was with Israel. Israel could not live with the, the nice people of Canaan, the people who I'm sure uh, wanted to assuage them and wanted to be good neighbors. Uh, they couldn't live with them uh, next door in their midst because living alongside uh, those people who had radically different values and who had made up gods that asked so much less of Israel than God, God knew that this temptation would be too great for them. And so he warned his people to get rid of them, just as I know that I shouldn't have chocolate laying around in the house. But they probably looked at the people who were there and thought, they're not that bad. What harm could they do? We're stronger than they are. And just like the last verse of the book reads, after 300 years of going through the cycle 13 different times, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The people of Israel did not learn. They didn't stay away from the things that God told them to stay away from, just as I don't stay away from chocolate. And the consequences came, and they were harsh. So here's where I'm going with this. Judges isn't just a historical survey of Israel 3,500 years ago. Scripture is, is tri-perspectival. 
And triperspectival is just a $5 word that means that scripture speaks with equal precision to the past, to the present, and to the future. Three different perspectives. Scripture spoke to the immediate needs and the challenges of its original audience, but it also spoke with equal profundity. That's another $5 word. To all of its hearers and readers from the original audience 3,500 years ago up through the present day, people in the year 300 who were reading the book of Judges um, had things that, that the Lord would bring to mind that applied to them in that ancient culture. People in the Middle Ages who read Judges were impacted by hearing it and the, the Spirit writing it on their hearts. People in the 1800s experienced the same thing. We today experience some, some current imminent meaning for us because God's word is eternal and the spirit writes it on our hearts. And it will continue to speak the very power of God for all time to come. Jesus said that heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. And as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in some way, the, the message of Judges applies to us today, not only in a historical sense, as we think back to the mistakes that Israel made 3,500 years ago, but in a real-time, current-needs sense for us. So what sense, I'm sorry, what would that sense be for us as modern Christians? Here's what I think. I think it, it's a call for us um, to ask the Lord to help us examine our own hearts to see where we're being influenced by the world around us and where we're being tempted to serve idols rather than living God. So let, let me just make one thing clear. When we look back to the original command of God in Numbers 33 and God said, get rid of those uh, people who belong to a different ethnic group than you do, who live among you. He's not telling us to purify our, our culture ethnically or racially or in any other way. What he's saying is to put away the things that tempt you to sin. Get, get them out of your midst so that they won't be a temptation to you. And I'm not implying... Uh, that any of us kneels down to a physical statue of Baal or has an Asherah uh, pole in our backyards. But what I'm saying is that each one of us has been influenced by the culture around us, a culture which, I must add, is just as dangerous as the culture that the Canaanites of 3,500 years ago uh, presented to Israel of that time. We're all invited to serve idols. The problem is that the idols that we're tempted to serve today don't necessarily look like a statue of a golden calf or some fancy totem pole that we keep in our backyard. The, the things that you and I are tempted to serve today are things that are in our hearts. This is what Jesus tells us many times in Scripture, I think especially of Mark 7 and Matthew 15, where he says that the bad things that we do, the sin that we commit, isn't triggered 
by, or I should say, isn't caused by anything that is external to us. It's caused by something that is within us. He says that it's out of the heart that comes uh, all, all these different kinds of sin. Because we serve idols. We want things for ourselves that are not good for us. So what are your idols? For me, I, I know that comfort, I know that control and affirmation from others, also know, uh, known rather as the fear of man, are idols for me. But what are they for you? Here are some diagnostic questions to help you think that through. How many hours a week do you spend on social media or listening to podcasts or trolling the internet? How are you influenced by what you see and by what you hear? What kinds of TV news and commentary programs do you watch? How do they influence you? Nothing that we see on the outside is benign. Nothing is, uh, besides scripture, is, is, is purely true. And so everything in the culture, whether it comes from the left or the right or the middle, it's all influencing us to, to in some way turn away from the Lord. How do you use your words with other people? Do you always have to have the last word? Do you, uh, does it feel good to you to take someone else down with the power of your words? Where do you prioritize spending money? Do you spend too much on things that make you happy? Or are you too stingy because you're afraid you won't have enough for the future? Is your mood generally anxious and fearful? Are you stubborn? Do you lack thanksgiving for God's goodness to you? I encourage you, I invite you to think about these questions and to ask the Holy Spirit to illumine your heart, to show you what your idols are, and then ask him to help you knock them down and drive them out just as Israel was commanded by God. And if you don't, they will continue to be things that prevent you from not only enjoying the love and the mercy that God provides, but they also exact a very high price, and they'll cause a lot of suffering. Perhaps they already have. That's what Israel found out. A good way to ask the Lord to do this is to use the last two verses of Psalm 139 as a prayer. David uh, writes uh, in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there uh, be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And so David is, is asking the Lord to come into his heart and to shine the light of his spirit in his heart to expose whatever unclean things are in there, leading David to do things that are sinful. You and I don't recognize those things by ourselves. The people of Israel didn't recognize that the people of Canaan would be as big of a danger as they were. We, we can do all kinds of things to justify the presence of idols in our lives. But that is not God's will for us. And it's not good for us as his people. So let's use our time in Judges this summer to acknowledge our own unfaithfulness and seek the Lord's help to repent of as much as possible. So that's the first point, our unfaithfulness. The second point is God's faithfulness. So neither the unfaithfulness of ancient Israel nor the unfaithfulness uh, 
of the current us has taken God by surprise. God is a compassionate father who does not enjoy seeing his children in distress. Though he is an immeasurably wise father and knows that sometimes distress uh, is the only thing that brings us to the end of ourselves, uh, I'm sorry, though he is an, an immeasurably wise father, he knows that sometimes uh, distress is the only thing that brings us to the end of ourselves. And so sometimes, both in ancient Israel and in our current situations, he uses trouble strategically to get our attention. Look with me at verses 13 through 18. Starting in verse 13, they, meaning Israel, abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet he did not list, they rather did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. So what we see in this passage is that God hears the cries for help from his people, and, and the people are crying out for help because of the consequences of their choices to abandon God and serve the Canaanite gods. And so God raises up these people called judges. Uh, verse 16 tells us that the judges saved Israel out of the hand of those who plundered them. But these judges were more like military heroes than courtroom judges. Though at least one judge, Deborah, also decided uh, what sounded like lawsuits between God's people. That's in Judges chapter 4. We'll talk about Deborah in a couple of weeks. I think that scripture calls these people judges because they were instruments of God's limited judgment on the various peoples of Canaan for their sin. And in doing so, God showed his faithfulness, his love, and his mercy to his covenant people, even though they continued to sin against him. As we're told in verse 18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who attacked, I'm sorry, those who afflicted and oppressed them. God was moved to pity with the Israelites of old, and he is moved to pity with us today. We don't care much for that phrase moved to, to pity because we view pity as something that we don't want and we don't need. But we do need it. You and I are in some ways even more subtly entrenched in sin and idolatry than our forefathers and foremothers were. They at least could see the idols that they worshipped. And as I said a moment ago, our idols tend to be the idols of the heart, which are just as dangerous, but they're largely invisible to the naked eye. And because we don't easily see them and others don't easily see them, we don't realize how bad things are for us until we hit a crisis. 
So let's acknowledge with grief and lament that we are habitual sinners against God, that we have forsaken him, that we are in desperate need of his help to drive out our idols. They keep us from really enjoying God and from really resting in his love. The Lord won't send us judges, though, because in the fullness of time, he sent his son Jesus, who is simultaneously the capital J judge, the, the ultimate judge, and the judged. Jesus came as our great hero and judge against all of our enemies, the, the greatest of which was death, and he drove them out and will destroy them completely one day. But Jesus was also judged in our place. Paul tells us that he became all sin so that in him we would become the very righteousness of God. Jesus was judged and punished on the cross. He, he took our idolatry onto his own shoulders. He was judged in our place as one who had abandoned God and worshipped idols. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that it is through the judgment that fell on him that all who profess Christ as Lord are healed. Those were our words of assurance today from Isaiah 53.5. So this day, embrace the Lord's covenant faithfulness to you with thanksgiving. Ask the Lord to send the Holy Spirit to search your heart and know where your idols are. And then ask him to give you the grace and the strength to walk in repentance as you work with the Lord to drive them out forever. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves to you in this task, uh, and we acknowledge that we cannot cast out these idols or tear them down our, on our own because we work to protect them. We want them to be there. And so, Lord, cure us of that desire. Cause us to love you more than we love our idols. And Lord, I, I pray that we in Christ, by his power, by his grace, would be found faithful. Not because of the good work we do, but because of Christ working in us to sanctify us and to transform us into a people ready for himself. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.